Hello, everybody, and welcome to Feeling Seen, the podcast that talks about the movies that make us feel seen. In this episode, my co-host for the day will be actor Isabel Furman. She is going to talk with me about her newest movie, The Novice, and the ways in which she relates to that character and the ways in which we all sort of relate to the screen via performance. We're going to switch it up. It's going to be a little bit different than, than conversations we've had previously, but you know what that means? That just means you're in for some new treasures and adventures, so lucky you. And then before we go at the end of the day, we are going to talk a little bit about a topic near and dear to my heart, which is the new screen coming out and specifically the matter of Sidney Prescott. So don't go anywhere. I've got a lot of emotion behind that. And now, without any further delay, let me give that co-host a proper introduction. Isabel Furman is an actor who you may know from the deeply underrated 2009 horror film The Orphan, in which she gives a gangbusters performance as the titular character. She also played Clove in the mega franchise, The Hunger Games. But the thing you can do right now, the place and time you can see her is right now in the movie The Novice tremendous drama that is so good it's been nominated for multiple independent spirit awards which includes isabel's nomination for best female lead isabel is there anything else we need to know about you before we get started (laughs) other than that i love dogs and it's a you know a rainy day but it feels like a really great day at the same time i'm good yeah ready to go (laughs) great great start i you know i feel like it's like I don't want to bring it up, but I feel like if I don't bring it up, I would be remiss because you might like I'm sure it gets brought up to you all the time. Uh, we have to recognize at the top of this that Isabel turned in one of the great genre performances of all time as a child in Orphan. <laughs> Truly, I rewatched this movie recently. The amount of screaming and delight that me and the entire room of people shared with one another at watching your performance, a performance which we had seen, a performance which we knew your range at 10 and your ability in this movie and back when you were a child to play a character with a huge secret and to unfold that so delicately over the course of a film is incredible. Isabel, the range, the range <laughs> from 10 to present. It's it's unbelievable. Thank you. No, it, it definitely terrifies my family. It's so funny because like my mom, I remember when she watched Orphan and still to this day, she, when she watched Novice, she's like, she's like, I know you. I love you. You're my daughter. I've known you every single day of your entire life. And yet I watch your movies and I'm like, where is my daughter? Because that's her body and that's her face, but it's not her. But, but that's, you know, for me, that's the point, you know? Right. I feel like, I feel like if I were mom, I'd be looking at you being like, you could be hiding anything. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, so I did read it in an interview that you had done that you like, you, you really kind of wanted to like lead by example in the filming of this movie, uh, which is a, it's, I was watching it last night. I was wanting to wait to watch it fresh before going into the conversation. And I was like, I like tweeted about it near the very. I was like, there are eight minutes left in this movie, and I feel like my body is going to explode into fire. Like the the finale was just like eating away at me, <laughs> and I and then I read about how you were like, but I wanted to make sure on set when we were filming that I was like keeping the tempo good on set, that I was like keeping the spirits high, and it's like I'm gonna I'm gonna lead from the front on this one because we're dealing with a lot of heavy shit here in the novice. Yeah, no, I've, I've been really lucky to work with such great actors since I was really young. And when I did Orphan, especially, you know, Vera Farmiga and Peter Sarsgaard, in my mind, are two actors that you, like, not everybody knows who they are, but everybody in the mm-hmm. industry obviously does. And working with mm-hmm. them on my first film really set a bar because they held the set in such a wonderful space of respect and love and... Uh, positivity. And I realized, you know, I, after that, you know, working on other projects, you're not always as lucky to work with people that hold the set like that. And when you're the Mm -hmm. number one person on the call sheet and you're in every single frame of the movie and you're spending the majority of the time on set with the crew, if you're having a bad time and showing it, everybody else is having a bad time. So I really, Mm -hmm. I knew going into it, how big of a feat this movie was going to be, especially because we were such a small budget independent film and, you know, we had such a strong story that Lauren had written. We had a clear vision from her. We had, everybody was on board, but I knew Mm -hmm. that if, if I couldn't emotionally separate, you know, one of the camera was rolling and being Alex to being smiley, happy Isabel, that 
things might go downhill pretty quickly because the crew morale is so important in making a movie. And I think because I was able to smile even when we were in pouring rain and I was peeing off the side of a boat after being in the water for 10 hours, yeah. you know, when, when everything was going wrong, I just remember because I had a I walkie-talkie when I was in those boats. I remember I would just hear like, well, Isabel looks like she's having a good time. So like, let's just keep going. <laughs> and, and, and that to me is great because I think that is what drove us through this movie from beginning to end. I mean, we, we really... As much as this was at times like a struggle to make this film, mm-hmm. I had the most incredible time. I still feel like I, I'm that girl from American Pie, you know, just like this one time at band camp. <laughs> like I literally can't stop talking about this movie. I, I feel like I feel so bad for the two films that I worked on after this because I think every sentence was like, well, when I was doing the, this rope, <laughs> when I was working, everyone's like, we don't want to hear about your ex anymore, Isabel. We don't want to hear about I it. And I was just like, I just was so in love with this film and this whole process and like how how much I, I got into it. I mean, I really felt like I like lost myself for a bit, but had the best time at the same time. So creatively fulfilled. Well, and okay, so a thing I did want to talk to you about, like, obviously, you, you've been asked a lot about the, the training that went into this and, and the extensive training in rowing that you yeah. did and the many hours. What I wanted to talk to you about a little bit more broadly was thinking between sort of this role at the present and then the role at the very start, there were a, an elemental thing to both was transformation. And I wanted to hear about sort of for you as a performer, the element of physical transformation and how that works in conversation with like the emotional intellectual way of getting into character, preparing for a character. Like what role does physical transformation play when you're in like in a, in an intense kind of film like this? I think it's massive. I think I've always looked up to actors like Daniel Day-Lewis and Christian Bale. And I mean, obviously Meryl Streep, because those are actors that every time you see them in a film, you don't see Mm -hmm. the person, you see the character. And Mm -hmm. I have always been fascinated by that, how you can completely lose yourself in somebody else, step into their skin, breathe the air that they're breathing, live in the world that they're living in, and fully embody what they're going through. And for me, I've always found that the physicality of the characters I play is where I find them. And I've done this, like I've done this actually since Orphan. I purposefully try and change the intonation of my voice or the way that I speak, Mm. the way that I walk or habits that I have. Like for Alex, for example, like I bit my nails like crazy because I wanted to look Mm. like, you know, even when I looked like I was put together, it's like these like nubby, tiny little fingernails. I will not lie. The first thing that made me like squirm out of my chair when I was watching this, like where I was like, oh no, we're in hell is when you started biting your nails at the very beginning of the movie. I was like, I know this person suddenly entirely. (laughs) This is telling me everything I need to know. And I'm terrified. I'm terrified for the trip she's about to go on. Yeah, and and those are things that are little things that you do. And then obviously they start to add up and you end up creating this physicality for this character. And obviously you're working on the script simultaneously. So this movie, you know, rowing for six hours every single day, I found Alex on the water. Like I, I found mm. relationships between what I was physically going through with the same things that she goes through in the script, feeling like this novice, feeling out of place, feeling like you're constantly striving to be better, feeling like you're trying to push yourself so that way you don't look like an idiot in front of all these other people that are in the boat mm-hmm. with you. And, and it really put me in a similar mind frame that I found so many rich moments that I was able to put into my performance. And then on top mm-hmm. of it, like, you know, then you work on on the script and and all of that. And that transformation kind of goes hand in hand and you find ways to blend the two together. Like you said, you know, finding those moments where, you know, she's in the back of the car listening to this conversation, but she is biting her nails. She is in this place mm-hmm. where like, you know, where something physical is what is telling the story. And I always yeah. feel like, you know, great actors can move their eyes and say absolutely nothing at all. And you can see exactly what what they're saying. And I was really fortunate that Lauren trusted me to tell the story because like for the first 12 minutes, I don't even speak. Right. Yeah, true. And even like my transformation as an actor from the beginning to the end of my training, you know, from the end of filming, I gained 12 pounds of muscle and that changed Mm -hmm. drastically the way that I stood, the way that I carried myself, the way that I walked. And, Mm -hmm. And that was something that I was able to put into my performance as well. So I think that they go hand in hand. I think that's why Christian Bale, like, you know, loses. Mm. 75 pounds and eats like a cracker a day or yeah to to transform himself for a role i i in yeah i think he went from the machinist maybe straight to batman yeah because because what you do in that journey is you find this person i think 
when you alter your body, you change your personality. I think any, any, I mean, any, any girl will know, you know, you get a, have a breakup, you cut your hair and you're like, I'm a whole yeah. new woman, you know, yeah. it's like, no, you're not. revenge body hashtag. <laughs> like you, you know, it changes your perception of yourself. And so I always try and do that. I always try and really change my perception of myself with my, whether it, you know, whether it's like an external physical appearance or a mannerism or a way that I walk mm-hmm. or a way that I speak in that way, it allows me to kind of slide into this character. And it also gives me a pretty easy escape route to Isabel when I need to find myself in moments where That's I good. feel like I've lost myself on set. That's okay. So that, that is a very, <clears throat> because while you've been talking about this and, and, and a little bit what we discussed about before we, we started recording was I remembered around the time of Girl Interrupted, Angelina Jolie was in, it, like a, a particular kind of zenith of her fame, obviously her Academy mm-hmm. role. And she talked about, that was a time when she was a bit more of like an erratic public figure. And, you know, the, the, the blood vial around the neck. And that was very much a part <laughs> of the persona. Yeah. And she talked about at that time, speaking in terms of like Girl Interrupted, a movie like Gia, at that point, her relationship with her art was at the end of filming, she would find that she would go into these very dark recesses because she would essentially be like cutting out a part of herself and walking away from it. And she would go through this intense period of like grief, of grieving for the person she had left behind. And and we had talked a bit before about you watching movies sort of in the context, like you as a viewer, your sort of instinctual relationship with these performances, with, with these actors you really love, is to not necessarily see parts of yourself so much as to completely lose, you know, yourself in the performance that they are giving. Sort of like, how do I put myself in this world with them. Yeah. And I wanted to talk a bit about that with like, you know, coming through the novice and, and perhaps your other work too. Like how do you find your emotional relationship is sort of after these intense roles? Like do you, have you always been able to find Isabel and find that escape hatch? Or is that something you've had to learn how to do? You know, after I did Orphan when I was younger, I felt like I carried that character with me for a really long time. Not, mm. not like, you know, the, crazy running around (laughs) killing people part but but you weren't trying to break up marriages as a tender 11 year old (laughs) no no but I I felt really old I felt so Mm -hmm. old I felt like Mm. I was an adult and yeah and it it doesn't you know I I don't think that this business forces people to grow up fast I think that that's like you Mm. know it can happen I but I think Mm. that I was working around adults all the time so you learn to grow up fast because you learn if you want an opinion, you have to state it confidently yeah. like an adult. You can't go, um, um, well, I kind of want to maybe right. do. you have to say, I want this character to do this, or I feel that this scene is better done like this. And if you don't say it confidently, then no one's going to trust you, um, mm-hmm. especially as a kid. And I think after finishing that movie, it was really, it was tough. I remember like, it, it took me a while to kind of come back to Isabel and, and, and it was for a while, I would say um, I would crash after working on films. I would get really mm. sick and like tired and, and I would just expend all of my energy. And what's funny is I really started to focus. I would say once I turned 21, I spent a year mm. where I didn't, I didn't work actually for the year that I was 21 and mm. I just had a good time. I hung out with my friends. <laughs> good. Yeah. I love that for you. I'm really yeah. glad you did that. I had a good time with my friends. I ran a marathon. I made good friends. I, I like loved kind of learning who I was. And I really felt like it was a great time for me to connect with myself at that age. And, mm. you know, I realized that taking time for myself was so important, kind of like, you know, taking time to be single. I mean, I always compare like these characters you play to like these relationships, like they're completely really close relationships. and. Yeah. So I took time to be, to be single when I was 21 and then, you know, came back. And when I did novice in 2019, I mean, that was at at the end of the year, I really felt like I was in a place where I was prepared for it, where I mentally Mm -hmm. knew that I, that I could separate the two, that I could play this character and be Isabel and I could change myself completely. I mean, that's why I wouldn't say that I'm, I'm a a method actor per se. I don't think I would subscribe to any specific kind of like technique, but Mm -hmm. I do tons of preparation and I definitely like lose myself while I'm working on something, but only, only with enough room to find myself when I really need to. And, Mm -hmm. and I take the time that I need. I mean, like when I'm on set, I'm a hundred percent there. I'm smiling, joking, having a great time. They call action. I'm like in the moment, in the scene, living and breathing this character. 
And then whenever there's a break, like I am finding time to be alone. So I would be checking in with myself, taking a nap if I need, doing the self-care that I need in order to give this performance, in order to give to the crew and in order to give, you know, give something to myself, basically to Mm -hmm. myself. So I I get what Angelina Jolie is saying about having those recesses. I think that those dips do happen. I think I've been trying to mediate them. And I did in the past with running. That was kind of what I did. If I didn't have a Hmm. next, I would run, I would train for a race and I would do a race. And and this last year, I kind of decided that, you know, that's not healthy either. You know, it's it's good. (laughs) It's really good to, to be in a place where there is this possibility of not knowing what's next. And that's a really powerful place to be. And I think, you know, this, this movie has a lot of this hustle culture attached to it, which I think we have. And I definitely have that as a person, like, you know, that kind of like Alex doesn't come from anything outside of myself. So I've learned through this film, through playing this character, this big, massive lesson in my life, which is you don't always have to have a next. And I think that's what, you know, where instead of a crash now, I feel like I go, what did I learn from this? And what am I going to take moving forward as I say Mm -hmm. goodbye to this person? Thank you. That's a beautiful answer. I really (laughs) appreciate that. (laughs) Well, and I, and that I, I'm really glad, like, I'm really glad you mentioned the, I like the hustle culture aspect, because that was, I, I was, you know, reading through interviews in advance of talking to you. And there was, I think one of my favorite things you you've talked about was I think it was the Roger Ebert interview. And you talked about how really almost nothing is as it seems like this is, you know, this movie is um, it's toying with perceptions and life is a game of perceptions. And yeah. that was true before the advent of social media, let alone like, you know, the it, age of image management that we're sort of in now. But you spoke about, you know, then I think you said it was the night before the indie spirit noms came out in the morning. Yeah. You're like, I was at a gas station and my card's getting declined and I can't fill my tank. And yeah. I'm sitting there crying, being like, I hope tomorrow morning goes well. Because I need to figure something out. And I will not lie to you. As somebody whose sister had to just like work something out with the family dentist to help get me the dental care I can't currently afford. I was like, fucking thank you for saying but it's, that. It's true. I, you know, I've been in this business since I was really little. And it's funny because I have like people that I knew when I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, who think that I'm mm-hmm. living in a million dollar, multi-million dollar house in LA. Yeah. Like I live in an apartment with my mom. My grandma's currently living with me on my couch because we're trying mm-hmm. to find a place for her to live here because she's been living in Wisconsin and it's been too far away. And especially mm-hmm. last year, we wanted to bring her closer. So And she shouldn't be going through those winters. She yeah. shouldn't. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> she keeps asking me if it's going to snow here in LA. And I think she's <laughs> it's not. But You're like, well, we're going to hell if it does. Yeah. So hopefully not grandma but but working in in the film industry is not like if you unless you're will smith who i've worked with and he's yeah. a wonderful guy you're not <laughs> making millions of dollars on every movie mm-hmm. that you do you're you're making and also the work is sporadic so maybe you yeah. get a good a good little boost from a film that you do and someone pays you good but you're living off that the entire year and and i yeah was lucky enough that i was able to make the prequel to orphan during 2020 mm-hmm. <laughs> but I didn't work at all this 2021 at mm-hmm. all. I mean, Lauren and I talk about it. It's like, you know, everyone's like the success of your movie. It's incredible. And I'm yeah. like, we're a tiny independent movie. Like this is so unbelievably exciting that we're yeah. here and people are talking about us for awards and that we're getting nominated for independent spirit awards and that we won Tribeca. But when we made this movie, it was not this big budget affair. Like this movie mm-hmm. was less than $2 million budget. Like nobody mm-hmm. really got paid in massive amounts. I mean, Lauren, the only reason Lauren edited the movie is because we didn't have the money for post-production. Like, like wow. that's how most of these decisions get made. And it's funny. Mm-hmm. People look at it as this glamorous, incredible business. And it is, I mean, I mean, my sister and I were laughing because she's like, everyone thinks that, you know, you're just like raking it in right now, Isabel. And I'm like, I know because yeah. it's hilarious because I have like luck. I'm very fortunate that like Louis Vuitton sends me a purse as a present. What a lovely gift. But like, yeah, I couldn't buy it for myself right now, but I'm so grateful to have it. But it is like it is funny for like the perception versus the reality, you know, Uh huh. I feel like that exists sort of integrally to to the conversations I try to have on this particular podcast, because, you know, in part of identifying ourselves in movies, it is this balance between who do we see on screen that represents the person that we want to be versus who perhaps in the same character, perhaps in a different character who represents the things that we are, but we we maybe don't acknowledge or maybe we don't want to acknowledge. Like when we see a truth reflected back at us, that's 
that can be a very painful thing for some people. It can be very euphoric for others. And it can, of course, be a balance between the two. But I think that is such we're all sort of subject to that same needing to find the truth in the middle of the perception of ourselves the way we want to be perceived mm-hmm. and then the truth with beneath all of it. And I and, and what you do in this movie you know, considered, I think, in in the context of things that you've said talking about it, like that that wonderful answer you just gave, I think there is an interesting, I really like thinking of this movie and your role as sort of blending all of those considerations into one thing, because we're seeing Alex as she is, we're seeing Alex as she wishes to be perceived, and then we're seeing the way that Alex is perceived by others. (laughs) And like you have said, this movie exists within her mind. So it's a, it's an incredible blend of all of these things. I I always think about that when, when I dive into a character is like, what's the, you know, who is this person in private? Who is this person yeah. the people closest to them? And who is this person publicly? Yeah. Um, the way that other people perceive that character and the way that the audience perceives that character. I mean, that's totally up to Lauren. And I think that's the same with people. Like you can't control how somebody looks at you and what they think of you. Like mm-hmm. I didn't have to say to myself, you know, Alex is psychotic. Lauren was going to make Alex look psychotic. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't need to do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that was not a part of my, about a part of my, my journey in this character, you know? And I don't think that Alex is a hundred percent honest with herself either. And mm-hmm. that is, I, think very true for most people I mean Mm -hmm. and 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 even you know saying like being seen by a character when I read the script I I didn't know what it was that pulled me into it that Mm. captivated me I mean I always look for movies that have present a challenge or will always uh you know make me think about something or bring me into the world of somebody else and that will completely allow me to transform and this movie did all of those things but at the same time through this character, I felt like I was seeing a part of myself and really only saw it until I, when I watched it on screen. I wouldn't say I realized this while I was working on the project and while I was mm-hmm. living with her every single day. But when I watched the movie the first time, I felt in my gut like, oh, shit, you spent this movie playing with this like shadow part of your personality that you never really like to talk about. You never mm-hmm. really like to present to people. And that quite honestly, I, I try and hide because I live in LA and mm-hmm. nobody, everybody has this like, oh, I don't care. Like I wake up in the morning, I'm super chill. Like everything. No, that is happens. super real. I have a friend here who was once employed for eight months and didn't tell a single person because he want, he didn't want anybody to know he needed a job because he was afraid that would make disqualify him for jobs that people knew he needed one. It's, it is, it is a strange place. You know, I don't know if it's the same everywhere else, but it's something that really confuses me about LA is like, everybody feels really good being in this place of like, oh, well, I don't really try very hard or like, I'm just like kind of working on this thing. And like, every, yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm just working on this thing. Yeah. Everyone's kind of like, it, and I think it's a, like a West coast mentality because I, I always find it interesting when I go to New York and people there, they will always tell you about what they're working on and how <laughs> it's going. And, and I think that there's like a really great happy medium that can be had, you know, where you can mm-hmm. have that kind of work ethic. And it's more like people in New York don't talk about it. They're working like crazy and they're always excited right. and they want to talk about everything else. People in LA always like to talk about work, but no one's actually always. doing anything. And that's what I think is interesting about like Alex is she so much is, you know, it's an East Coast school, but she has this mentality of like, you know, I am working hard. I, I'm going to isolate myself. I'm going to like, you know, wake up early. I'm going to stay late. I'm going to, you know, really like crush this thing that that is I'm not naturally predisposed to do. And I'm going to yeah face this challenge and I'm going to succeed. And she's like staring at Jamie across the room who's like, oh, I wasn't really trying that hard. So I don't think the time that the coach recommended is accurate. Yeah. And it's like, Someone literally stabbing her in the chest because for her, it's like, that seems like next to impossible. So yeah, it really, it, it is a part of myself that I, I wasn't really particularly comfortable with and sharing it through this movie has made me realize that I am this person. I think I'm having a better relationship with this part of myself, but I don't necessarily think I want to throw this part of myself away because I think it yeah. gives me an edge. It's what's allowed me to stay in this business since I was 10 through all the ups mm-hmm. and downs through going to school through through everything was really knowing that that I have a resiliency that I don't think everybody has. All right, we are going to take a quick break, but we have got so much more to get into with Isabel Furman. Stay with us.
Hey, I'm Annabelle Gerwich. And I'm Laura House. And we're the hosts of Tiny Victories. My tiny victory is that I sewed that button back on the day after it broke. We talk about that little thing that you did that's a big deal to you, but nobody else cares. Did you get that Guggenheim Genius Award? We don't want to hear from you. We want little bitty tiny victories. My tiny victory is a tattoo that I added on to this past weekend. Let's talk about it. My victory is that I'm one year cancer free, but my tiny victory is that I took all of the cushions off the couch, pounded them out, put them back, and it looks so great. So if you're like us and you want to celebrate the tiny achievements of ordinary people, listen to Tiny Victories. It's on every Monday on Maximum Fun. Are you feeling elevated levels of anxiety? Do you quake uncontrollably, even thinking about watching cable news? Do you have disturbing nightmares, only to realize it's two in the afternoon and you're up? If you've experienced one or more of these symptoms, you may have FNO, news overload. Fortunately, there's treatment. Hi, I'm Dave Holmes, host of Troubled Waters. Troubled Waters helps fight FNO. That's because Troubled Waters stimulates your joy zone. On Troubled Waters, two comedians will battle one another for pop culture supremacy. So join me, Dave Holmes for two, two, two doses of Troubled Waters a month. The cure for your news overload. Available on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Feeling Scene. I'm your host, Jordan Cruciola. I'm talking with Isabel Furman this week. She's the star of the new movie, The Novice. It's a role that has earned her an Independent Spirit Award nomination, and I would assume some battle scars along the way with the physical grit and determination she throws into this part. You might have also seen Isabel in The Hunger Games or The Orphan, where she played the character of Esther. Look her up, watch the movie, experience it for yourself. Let's get back into it. We're all forced to confront aspects of ourselves that we might not yet have reconciled, but in your doing so, you have to live them. You have to you have to sleep with them. You have to talk to them. You have to embody them. And that is a in in like and in doing so, you become a conduit for us to like face those evils, perhaps in ourselves or those demons we haven't dealt with. That is a it's a very unique job you have. Well, when I studied psychology in school, one of my favorite things that we talked about in class one day was you you tell a kid that the stove is hot and they can't touch the Mm -hmm. stove because they'll burn themselves. Mm-hmm. and nine times out of 10, that kid will touch the stove and see for himself or herself yeah. whether it's hot. But if you tell the kid a story about how this kid across the street was at his house and the stove was mm-hmm. on and it was burning and didn't listen to his parents and he touched it and his skin almost melted off and yeah. you get really into the details of it, <laughs> that kid will never touch the stove because they're going to have right. an emotional reaction to the story that you tell them. And so storytelling is really special in this way that it allows people to learn things through an emotional response that Mm -hmm, gets mm -hmm. ingrained in their brain and their body and everything just by observing and watching a movie. Now, not all movies do this. I mean, some movies, you know, you're just like, you know, having like a wonderful escape from reality or you're laughing Mm -hmm. about something or you're going, oh, I wish I could go on vacation with my friends like that. But in a movie like this, for example, like that's that's what this movie is in a sense. It's a way for you to like dive into someone's head and understand the anxiety inducing journey it is to become obsessed with something and to try to be the best at it for no other reason other than to to prove it to yourself. And I learn a lot through characters that I play. And I also Mm -hmm. learn a lot about myself. I also feel so much. I mean, I... You know, I'm I'm a Pisces. I'm a very emotional person, you know. <laughs> and when I have these moments with these characters where, like, for example, that scene in, in Novice where I have this argument with Danny in the bathroom. I mean, mm, that God. scene felt incredibly real to me in so many ways. Everything from the whole speech of, like, nobody knows how hard I have to push myself to be the best. I mean, that felt so real when I was saying it. Mm-hmm. And Delone really, like, brought such a... A, like a new spin on the scene in the sense that she started grabbing at my shirt and that was not in the script. And all of a sudden we were on the floor mm-hmm. and then we were crying. And then we were talking about stuff that not everything made, made the cut, but, but, but the way that I see that scene now is so different than how I imagined it reading it was because our feelings took us somewhere else. And mm-hmm. that scene ended with like <laughs> Delone and I on the ground, hugging each other for like five minutes while Lauren 
sat on the other side of the door and Todd's like there with the camera and I hear Todd <laughs> crying and Delone and I oh. are crying and then I just hear Lauren from the other room just go cut and she comes in. <laughs> we all just like collapsed on the floor and cried together for like 10 minutes because because what we had done was we lived through a real experience that felt so real that like all of us like our DP Todd had just gone through a breakup too. Like Lauren had gone oh, through yeah. a breakup. <laughs> Todd, no. had gone through a breakup. I mean, I I mean I hadn't just gone through a breakup, but still felt like I went through a breakup. You know, right? So, but you you don't have to have gone through the breakup. You're the subject. No, you're the I subject felt of the like I went through a breakup, and it was so sad. And and that's that's what you see in the movie. And to me, it it, it I'm so proud of that moment because what we captured was not was not like a prepared you know, scene where we prepped for it and got ready for it. I mean, of course we did, but what we found was something so much richer. Like we, you know, I had an acting teacher when I was younger, when I went to RADA in London, who said, no one wants a cooked meal. You want to cook it in front of them to show everybody what it looks like so they can smell it. So they want to taste it so they can salivate over it. And that's what we had done is we had literally like, we had chopped all that shit and put it in the pan and we made it in front of everyone and then it was like everyone's crying eating it going this is the best thing ever and we all knew like yeah it is the best thing ever because we found something real 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 now okay then I'm curious to like you you talked we talked about sort of those like to create those like emotionally evocative moments I wonder what if there are some like representative or standout scenes that you've watched that you've observed in other work where you feel like you just watched them making the meal in front of you. Like some scenes where you were like, that's the fucking cooks in the kitchen right there. And like, that's the craft I want to get to. Um, a scene that I watched last night. I mean, I love Devil Wears Prada because Meryl's performance. Fabulous. But it's so specific. And that scene where she starts talking about how she's laughing about the belts being the same. Mm-hmm. Because she's wearing the sweater that she thinks has enough. Oh, the blue sweater. The yeah. cerulean blue sweater. Mm. Both those belts look exactly the same to me. You know, I'm still learning about this stuff and... Uh... This stuff? Oh, okay. I see. You think this has nothing to do with you. You go to your closet and you select, I don't know, that lumpy blue sweater, for instance, because you're trying to tell the world that you take yourself too seriously to care about what you put on your back, but what you don't know is that that sweater is not just blue, it's not turquoise, it's not lapis, it's actually cerulean. And you're also blithely unaware of the fact that in 2002, Oscar de la Renta did a collection of cerulean gowns, and then I think it was Yves Saint Laurent, wasn't it, who showed cerulean military jackets? I think we need a jacket here. Mm. And then Cerulean quickly showed up in the collections of eight different designers. And then it uh, filtered down through the department stores and then trickled on down into some tragic casual corner where you no doubt fished it out of some clearance bin. However, that blue represents millions of dollars and countless jobs. And it's sort of comical how you think that you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when in fact, you're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. Every single beat has its own moment, its own meal. Every mm. sentence just like cuts deeper and deeper and deeper. And mm-hmm. she knows it, but she's not alluding to it. She's not showing it. It's like it's like stabbing someone in the, in the stomach without them knowing. And it's not <laughs> until it's over that you realize that you're dying. Like that's how clever. <laughs> oh my God, I'm bleeding out. How did this happen? Yeah, that's how clever that, that scene is. That performance in that scene is, is, is really in my mind, such a, uh, it's a difficult thing to pull off, honestly, w- mm-hmm. because you could just say it's like the dialogue, but she's not just saying the dialogue. She's putting together the outfit. She's moving around the room. She is embodying this other person. She is mm-hmm. this character. So that's like a scene that I would say really, floored me recently but that's just because I watched that movie the other day I mean I I think the you know I watched Red Rocket too recently in that scene oh yeah where Susanna Sun plays the piano for Simon Rex's character in the bedroom and you're like wow don't go with him to LA like that was you know (laughs) know what I mean you're like every fiber in your body is screaming do not go but that's but that to me is like those those scenes like in in movies that really make you could go like, oh, like, 
gosh, you just want to like kick something or do something. I mean, um, yeah, I, I, I really love when, when I watch films and they, and they take me someplace else or when you watch an actor and you can't, can't quite figure out how they're doing it because they're not doing anything. They just are. Well, I think a thing that I, I kept sort of going back to as I was watching the movie was, and, and we've touched on this a bit up to this point, but the way Alex as a character very comfortably demystifies the notion of effortlessness. She's not secret about how hard she works, but she's also not the one walking into the room being like, I'm working the hardest. Like it has to be kind of contextually like elicited out of her, but she will fully say like in that wonderful, like extremely cute pool scene between Alex and Danny, Mm -hmm. where you're talking about exactly how you became salutatorian of your (laughs) class and all the times that it didn't work. Like the guy who just never tried. And I love that, that banter back and forth of her being like, and then you beat him. And you're like, no, 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 not yet. And then you beat him. Okay, no, but not that time. Yeah. Tied. Like I really, because there's something very radical still mm-hmm. about women asserting how, I mean, and Alex has some boundary issues and she needs to work out some coping mechanisms, but there is something very radical about women expressing how hard they work. Because it is very an L.A. specific thing to be like, oh, no, it's chill. Work just comes to me and I've got stuff going on. I can't talk about it yet. I'll tell you soon. Like, that is a very L.A. move. But, like, the idea of, like, women having to be twice as good and look like they're working half as hard so as not to be confrontationally ambitious or to not be offensively trying hard. Like, you know, the, the try hard, which even gets shouted out in this movie, like. Jamie's character mentions like, oh, the tryhard, she's gone. Yeah. Like that's something we don't want. And I really liked how even as we are battling with how to root for Alex versus rooting for Alex to stop, I never stopped rooting for that Alex was the hardest worker and and wanting that to have a return on its investment. And I thought it was really incredible how this movie emphasized the work. And then in that last moment, how we see it go, the outcome is never what we were there for because it's about the work. I, we as people, I feel gen, generally and genuinely have this desire to be rewarded for any work that we do. And mm-hmm. I see this more and more. It's like you work for a certain amount of time. You're like, I feel like I should be paid more. I feel like this should happen. I feel like I should be promoted. I mean, it's a natural it's a natural part of, of the work is, is this kind of like looming outcome that could possibly happen. And, and Lauren and I spoke a lot about how in this movie, there is no external force that's like pushing her forward. This is not the crew team that's going to go to the Olympics. This is not, mm-hmm. you know, that's not what this is. This is more of a challenge to see if Alex can win out against these naturally gifted people and mm-hmm. prove that even though she's not tall enough or isn't predisposed to be doing the sport is not what you would think of when you look at a rower that she mm-hmm. can beat all of them with her resilience and with her grit and with her drive. And, and it's not to beat them. It's really to prove to herself that she can. I love this movie. And Lauren and I spoke about this a lot too. in, in recent interviews, how, you know, she wrote this about her own kind of experience in mm. collegiate rowing. And so to me and to her, gender didn't really seem to be something that we spoke about very often in, in the context of this movie. It's mm. just like, that was, you know, write what you know, right? So she yeah. wrote a story that she knew. And, you know, that's why this movie is like, you know, a lot of people have asked us so many questions about like how feminist this film is and how like women oriented it is. And what I love about Lauren is she's like, well, yeah, because it's like what I wrote. Like, that's just what I knew. Yeah. It wasn't like a, oh, I'm going to write this movie about women's rowing. It was like, this was my yeah. experience. Here it is. So I, I find the competitive nature of it actually fascinating too, in the context of the women in, on the team, because they all seem to have their own axe to grind. You know, yeah. Jamie is like vying for that scholarship. Charlotte Ubbins' character, who plays the Coxwain. She yeah. she is like wanting to be in that varsity boat, but she's not going to fight to do it. She's not going to like kick and scream. She thinks it'll happen in the right time. You know, yeah. Coach Edwards is like trying to make her team better and is trying to inject some of the work ethic that Alex has into her naturally gifted team that she scouted from all over the country. And and no one's really stepping up to the plate except for this like novice who who she doesn't particularly think has that much talent and thinks it's kind of crazy. <laughs> Well, okay. So a thing that I, as we, as we wind down, like one of the the last things I wanted to ask you was like, since you brought up like 
And I really, I'm really glad you mentioned this. You mentioned how like, you know, you, you, tell me about this feminist rowing movie that you've made. And it's like, actually, I just made a movie about that I like understood because it came from my life. Mm-hmm. And what I think is really noteworthy about that is that I'm 100% with you guys on that answer. And that is why it's one of the things that I was really enjoying most about this movie is is that reminder that we are progressing to a point in in the opportunities um women gender queer non non um male normative uh individuals are getting a chance to make their movies and tell their stories and how that means that because there can be more opportunities like that every opportunity doesn't feel like the last one or the mm-hmm. only one and so this can just be a movie about a queer girl who's like, want to go out sometime? And there doesn't have to be an event over the fact that she just asked a girl out, even though she was hooking up with the dude in the beginning of the movie. And this can just be about a bunch of women who row without being a bunch of, about being a bunch of capital W women who row. And it's really nice for there just, for there to be representation that doesn't have to feel like capital R representation when you are watching something and feeling it resonate with you and being like this is so great it's just being presented to me as a story not some like obelisk that I meant to rally around because I checked the box of women and I checked the box of queer yeah Lauren really has spoken to this I think way better than I could but but she's said and when we talked about it too originally after I read the script the, the, the reason Danny and her relationship with Danny is you know, is a queer relationship was simply based on the fact that Lauren is, is a queer woman. And she actually, funny enough, the reason Danny is Danny is because she originally wrote, because this like, you know, heteronormativity wrote Danny as a dude. And when she first read the script through, she was like, this makes no sense. Like, I'm just going to change a bunch of things and change Danny to being uh, a woman because she was like, I didn't want to write that story. And I love props to you for having Delone as a screen girlfriend. Oh, I know. When Round they, of applause for you. When they cast her. I was so, I was so red because I remember Lauren came to my trailer <laughs> and I was like, I was like, you think that like I could date her? I was like so <laughs> flattered and shocked. But when I read the script, I found that to be so groundbreaking because I think there's so much right now being written. And I understand there's such a, there is a need for representation, but I also think that the way to make representation really uh, like we talked about storytelling, right? And how you can learn mm-hmm. from storytelling. If you show a relationship like this, where the relationship that Alex has with the woman is not something that the team harps on, there's no slurs, there's no anything. It's just something that is a part of the story. You normalize it in a way that people don't question it. It's not like, oh, well, why did they have to, you know, have her date a woman? It's like, it doesn't matter because it's not even yeah. a conversation. It's just, it's not even a conversation the point. The fact of the movie. And, mm-hmm. and that was something I really loved. I feel like it's so groundbreaking. And, and Lauren has said this over and over that like, obviously the, you know, there is importance in having stories being told about queer oppression and, and moments in history. And also, you know, to yeah. really show the differences of the time period, but she feels, and I, and I feel too, as we've been moving forward and in, in our, you know, in society and in this next generation too, you know, people are just way more fluid about it, way more chill about it. It doesn't really mm-hmm. become a conversation. It's like, people are all people. People love mm-hmm. who they love. People fall in love with who they want to fall in love with. And we don't necessarily need to have these like labels, you know, all the time of what this is and what that is and how to explain it or box it up. I I, I completely agree. And and I, I, I could really continue talking to you for a very long time. I'm having a very, a very fun time. Um, but I have to ask you my my final question. Uh-huh. And in my it's it's gonna be one of those unfair questions that's like so kind of expansive and it's just gonna be put in your lap. So don't worry, there's no wrong answer. <laughs> but I my sort of outro was sort of how we've been talking about this so far is, you know you know, you talking about I re- relating to characters through how you can get lost um, in them as as bringing you into the worlds that that they're helping to create. I wondered sort of, you know, with with what you have ahead or with what you're hoping to have ahead or, or things that you see that you hope are like, God, I want I can I want to get something like that. Like, what are some of the channels or avenues that you're looking forward to, like growing through? in the work that you take to come, like talking about like taking bits of characters with you as you go, like what are some things that you feel inspired to or excited to like grow through with, with opportunities you want to have ahead of you? 
I think a lot of people thought that when I did Orphan as a 10-year-old, that that performance was like a fluke because I was a kid. And I think a lot right. of people perceive like child actors to be like, you know, paid puppets, which I don't mm. necessarily, I've worked with some where you literally are like, oh my gosh, like without these parents, like, I don't know if this would be as good, you know, or <laughs> yeah. this acting teacher. But also, I mean, I was so aware of that performance. I really did so much work on it and I was really proud of that performance. And so mm-hmm. for years, it's been, it's been a really interesting place to be as an actress where I feel like I'm constantly having to prove that that was not a fluke. And I feel mm-hmm. really excited that this movie has, in my mind, at least shown people that I've worked with, people that I will work with in the future that I can carry a film from beginning to end. I can be the one that takes you on this ride. I can fully kind of transform into a character that's not a homicidal maniac, <laughs> you know? And, and I can really, you know, be trusted with somebody's vision for mm-hmm. what story they want to tell. And mm-hmm. that is what I really hope I get the opportunity to do is to, to really lead more films and tell more stories like this that really make you ask questions or, put you in a place where you feel seen and understood or really allow you to look around at somebody in your life and go, I think I know what this person's going through now Mm -hmm, after watching this movie. I think that is, you have just really put the bow right on the top with that. And (laughs) I, you know, I, I was, I was excited to see where this conversation was going to go. And I'm glad that it, it took us to a point too, where we could talk about how you want to feel more honestly seen as as an actor and as a professional. And I'm I'm really glad that we got to go there with it's that. It's true. It's true. You know, like we said, nothing's as it seems, you know, I, I really am like, I, I remember when I was young, I went to this L Women Hollywood party when I when Orphan came out. And I distinctly remember Kate Hudson, who is I've always looked up to standing up there and accepting an award. And she mm. literally said to this audience of like, Quentin Tarantino and Martin Scorsese right. and all these amazing directors and all these amazing actors. She said, I'm currently not working on anything and I would like a job. So if anybody is hiring for a film and wants to come talk to me about it, I'll be sitting at that table. And I remember I thinking to myself, that. wow, really nothing is as you think it is. And everyone's just looking to feel seen by somebody else always. That is, I love that. And speaking of like demystifying the work and sort of breaking the fourth wall, that is fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Isabel, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank um, you. I This is absolutely one of the best goddamn movies of the year, oh, The Novice. Thank you. And I, 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 I wish for people to rush to any platform or opportunity to see it. You do. And tremendous job, like you said. Every frame of the film, there you are. And <laughs> I, 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 you know, all the, all the feelings of, of being rewarded that you express in doing the work that communicates through on screen. And as an audience member, I feel as rewarded by your efforts. So thank, thank you for that. No, thank you, Jordan. And this was such a great conversation. So cool to talk with you about it. Really, thank you. That was Isabel Furman, everyone. She is tremendous in The Novice. Uh, You can rent that digitally now if you want to watch a harrowing character study of a young woman driven to the brink by the pursuit of perfection, uh, plus rowing, plus an incredible performance. That's all you need. Uh, Isabel is set to star also. (laughs) Set your watches, everybody. I've been making a daisy chain countdown for this. She is set to star in the prequel to The Orphan, uh, she has already filmed that. It's called Orphan First Kill. It's set to come out later this year. You know, COVID depending. Who knows about these things? But if you are fam- if you're not familiar with the Orphan, I cannot tell you how bananas insane it is that they're doing a prequel specifically to this movie and that Isabel has returned to reprise the role. So <laughs> let's all gear up for that. But before we end today, I said I've got one quick thing before I go, and that concerns my beloved favorite horror franchise of all time, Scream, the fifth installment of which is coming out, I believe, next week. This is years in the making. Scream 4 came out in like 2011, I think. And so we are we are past a decade since the last time we had Scream. And I'm really worried, guys. I'm really worried because the thing about thing about horror if you know the rules is that the sequel always has to level up the body count has to be higher 
the spectacle has to be crazier. And like Randy told us about trilogies, like it could be Reservoir Dogs by the time this thing is over. You know, everybody could die. And as he said, that means you, Sid. But the thing about Scream is that I don't know what Bellinelli and Olpen, the directors of writer directors of Ready or Not, who have taken on the franchise. I don't know what they have planned, but I'm terrified that Sidney Prescott is going to die in the name of raising the stakes or resurrecting the franchise or passing it off to new stars. And that it cannot happen. It cannot happen because Sidney Prescott is sacrosanct. Sidney Prescott cannot die. The entire point of Scream is that Ghostface is an interchangeable whoever the hell that Sidney Prescott vanquishes every time. And I don't care if you think that keeps the stakes low. I really don't care because the point of Scream is that Sidney is greater than the nemesis. Sidney is greater than the villain. The villain can die, but Sidney must remain immortal because that is the soul of the franchise. I feel like if you killed Sidney Prescott, Wes Craven would rise out of his grave and weep over you in your bed in the night. Like, I'm not even going to say he's going to haunt you and kill you. I'm going to say he's going to be disappointed in you. And he's going to find you and imbue you with the sadness that and the heartbreak that he would have for his screen heroine that, that is the greatest final girl of all time, that is the greatest scream queen, the greatest slasher heroine. And I take that designation very seriously. All due respect to Jamie Lee Curtis, she might be the blueprint, but Sydney Prescott is the apex predator. She is the apex predator all day, baby. And so I just hope that not out of a sense of reverence to a franchise or easter eggs or like misplaced loyalty to fans who are too precious this isn't about being precious this is about the only horror franchise that made the final girl bigger than everything else that's it this is about the franchise that made the final girl representative of so much strength and enduring survivability that it didn't fucking matter who was ghostface because the main event was sydney and the main event will always be Sydney. So I hope going into Scream that we can all come out the other side and celebrate yet another triumph by Sydney Prescott. Because if not, this movie can be buried under a jail. Like, I, I, even if I loved every minute of it, in that moment, if Sydney Prescott went down with the ship, I would riot. I would scream. It, it would be, you know, Twitter hashtag screaming, crying, throwing up. Terrible moment for me. And I hope all of you, if you truly understand the, the poignancy of Sydney Prescott as a heroine. So that is all I have to say for now. Hopefully I don't have too terribly much to say in the same matter on a couple weeks because that will mean things will have gone horribly awry. But that is our show then. That is our very exciting show. You can follow us on Twitter at FeelingScenePod or you can join our Facebook group at www.facebook.com slash groups slash FeelingScenePod and you can also send us an email at FeelingScene at MaximumFun.org. If you want to follow me, I'm Jor Crew on Twitter. That's J-O-R-C-R-U. Our theme music is by Andrew Epen. Our senior producers are Kevin Ferguson and Laura Swisher. And this is a production of Maximum Fun. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.